We love any time we get the opportunity to welcome a Houston hero to the show. Today, we are so excited to welcome Emmy Award winner, podcast host, and KPRC2 legend, Linda Laurel, to discuss some challenging topics with empathy, grace, and as always, balance. Hate is learned. Racism is learned. We don't pop out of the womb hating somebody because they look different than we are. We are taught to do that. And so I just feel as though it all, and when I say all, I mean almost everything that we are dealing with as the human race comes back to human connection and where it it disintegrates. In this dynamic conversation, Linda and Renya discuss some mature topics and there's some powerful but explicit language use. Because of this, our episode may not be appropriate for a younger audience and viewer discretion is advised. Without further ado, here's your host, Renya Mancarios. Welcome to the Balanced Voice Podcast. We are so excited for today's guest, Linda Lorel. Linda, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Rania. I can't believe we finally are getting around to doing this. I'm so excited. It's been a long time in the making. Okay, so I'm reading, obviously, about you to prepare for this. And I was like, the bio cannot be read. But <laughs> Emmy Award-winning journalist, entrepreneur, CEO of Linda Laurel. Obviously, you're an artist. I didn't even know that about your history. You're the host, the creator of our Voices Matter podcast. You're the founder of the Linda Laurel Scholarship Fund, which, by the way, has given over $4.5 million in uh, college scholarships. In 2021, you won the Silver Tully uh, winner for social impact. You are all around hero and sort of my dream person and one, it's just amazing. Everything you've done, Linda, there's so much I want to talk to you about. I love that you said two things. I'm going to start with your passion, creating content and sharing stories that remind us of our common humanity. And my God, if that could be the theme of this conversation and of our, our year and our lives, we would all be better for it. And your mantra is empathy and encouragement. I want yeah. to start by talking about how did you get here to all of this? <laughs> I growing up, I think, in the south side of Chicago, moving to Houston in the 80s for your first job. Background, yeah. whatever you can share, we want to hear. Okay. It yeah. Growing up on the south side of Chicago, um, actually had a career as a professional dancer. Uh, that was my first career. And then I went back to school and got my master's in journalism at the University of Missouri, Columbia. My first TV job was in St. Louis as a reporter. And then I came here to Houston in 1989 as the weekend anchor and education reporter at KPRC. Uh, about a year later, I got promoted to prime time and I was doing the six and 10 and doing all kinds of uh, incredible kinds of reporting and documentaries and telethons and just uh, had a, a really wonderful run at KPRC until 2006 and left then, um, went into the real estate business for a short period of time um, at the wrong moment in history, 2007, 2008. Oh. There's, a, there's a story there. 
Um, okay, but then, well, the story you'll have well, to. Well, <laughs> we'll do that story another day. But <laughs> 2000, um, 2009, I rediscovered my passion for storytelling and journalism. And that's when I started my company, um, Laurel Media. And, um, and so I've been doing um, communications consulting and video production work for clients since then. And then three years ago, under the umbrella of my company, I started the podcast, Our Voices Matter. Um, and so we just finished up our third year and um, still going strong. And I was lovely having you on the podcast and I think our first year. So ah. it's just great to be here with you um, on The Balanced Voice. Well, it was a, a thrill for us to sit with you for to have the conversation with you. You're such a beautiful storyteller, but I think you're also just such an incredible interviewer. So we had, for me, it was a wonderful conversation. And I liked, I enjoyed watching you work because so, sitting on this side and having, you know, we, we, for so long, Crime Stoppers were answering media questions and we love doing that, but it's very different to actually initiate a conversation. It's a completely different you know, you need a different skill set, which it was mm -hmm. a thrill for me to watch you do it. So, I mean, there's like three different ways I want to go, but I'm going to start with this. You've, you've had a front seat in the news for a very long time. You've learned the art of telling people's stories. You've gone from appointment television to the 24-hour news cycle where everybody's a journalist and everybody has a story to tell and facts are whatever we believe them to be in the moment. What has it been like for you to watch the chain, this change? What are you concerned mm -hmm. about? Where are we headed? It's been uh, painful <laughs> to, to, uh, to put it in one word. It's been painful. Um, and I'll tell you why. So you just said that Every, everybody is a storyteller. Everybody's a journalist. Everybody is not a journalist. Um, everybody can be a storyteller, but journalism is a profession. Mm. True journalists have gone to school, have learned the art of what it means to get to the truth of a story. I just had a a really great conversation about this with one of my former co-workers at KPRC. His name is Brendan Keith. And actually my podcast from last week is with Brendan. And the title of that podcast is Meaningful Journalism and Why It Matters. And we do a deep dive into talking about this. Um, you know, the democratization of news because of social media and other factors um, has been a double-pronged, a double-edged sword, if you will. On the one hand, it is, it is helping to hold journalists accountable, and that's a good thing because journalists need to be held accountable for their stories. But at the same time, it has given people um, the, the, the freedom to say and believe that when they put something out there that it's fact and that their opinion is, can be counted as journalism. Mm. That is not what journalism is. And I think part of, of what needs to happen in this conversation is helping to bringing the public into the conversation about media consumption and how to basically decide what your media diet is going to be. Right. We, we have, so when I, when I was, when I was, um, 
in journalism school. So I graduated from journalism school with my master's in 1987. And then I worked for two years as a reporter in St. Louis. And then I came here to Houston in 89. I had about maybe two to three years where I was working in the business as I had been taught that the business was. So I was trained in what I like to call the Edward R. Murrow School of Journalism. It's about balanced, fair reporting. It's about getting both sides um, of an issue. You know, somebody should be able to look at me as a reporter or an anchor sitting at the news desk and not know what my political persuasion is. I mean, that was something that I held as a great badge of honor when I was on the air. I had people in Houston who thought that I was a staunch Democrat. And I had people who thought that I was a staunch Republican. And that is exactly how I wanted it. It was nobody's business. And it was not my business to impart my point of view when I was delivering the news. And so I have friend, I had and have friends across the political spectrum. But as a journalist, it's not my job to tell you what to believe. It's my job to uncover the facts and present them to you and then let you decide. And so I think part of this conversation has to be around helping the public to understand how true journalism happens. That we don't just go out there and throw stories on the air without having them vetted and multiple, you know, sourced in multiple ways. Um, so I think there needs to be some education about that. And there needs to be some really open, honest conversation so that when you're choosing which news outlet to, or uh, news outlet, because so many people get their news now from social media. Yeah. Well, okay. Who, who is the person telling you this as fact and why should you believe them? just because they believe the same thing that you do. So there's there's a whole nother side of the conversation that I think we need to have. And I worry about that side for the next generation. I, you know, younger kids, high schoolers, for example, literally college kids get their news from Twitter. And mm-hmm. I, you, anyone on earth can open a Twitter account and say whatever they want. And if it sounds, exactly. rings true to you, as a young person, you follow, you ascribe to, and that becomes your source of news. And it's really mm-hmm. just conversation. I love mm-hmm. you said the democratization of news. And then you you talked about the fact that one, I think that is a huge problem. And I and I don't know how to get ahead of it. I don't know how to curb it. I don't know, I don't know how we will conquer that one issue because again, everybody feels entitled to have an opinion and the opinion, if it's, if it's my truth, it's, it becomes fact and it needs to become your truth. And that's not true in true journalism, but also the role of politics. You, the day, the days of not knowing what our news journalists, what they ascribe to politically, I feel like are so far gone. I've, I've often said over the last year, the only real news now is local news. Because the local news anchor truly does just deliver the local news, whereas in mainstream media, on the cable networks, the national shows, it's so politically biased. How do we get away from that, though, if that's what sells and that's what people want to hear? You feel more comfortable having the person delivering the the news delivered and in your language, your tone, and, and using the words you want to hear, making enemies of the person you want to be enemies. How do we move away from that? 
it's the $64 million question. You know, yeah. it, it, re- it really is. And I, I wish I had the answer to it, but I think that it's, it's that part of the answer is rooted in what I just said about mm-hmm. helping people to understand how stories get on the air, how stories are vetted. Um, you know, before we had, um, you know, when we, when, when broadcast television, you know, first came into being and we had initially three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, that was it. And then we started having entire networks devoted to one point of view. And that's when, in my opinion, that we really started to get into trouble as a democracy, because what, what happens then, of course, is that people get in their own filter bubbles and they don't ever have to leave because there's always going to be a place where they can go to get what they already believe reinforced, whether it happens to be the truth or not. And we are now witnessing, in my opinion, the, um, I guess, the comeuppance of that right now. It has contributed greatly, greatly to the political divide, the ideological divide in our country. Media has a huge role to play in it. And and we have a huge role to play in hopefully bringing us together in in some way. One of the, there is a a news outlet, um, it's online, and I, I love this site, and um, I urge your your listeners to um, to check it out. It's called allsides.com, A-L-L-S-I-D-E-S.com. The CEO is a guy named John Gable, and I think this has been around now really since 2012 or so. But what's so great about it, and a few years ago, I, I did a... Um, uh, a session with some young journalists, young journalists, young people, high school students here in the Houston area, and it was a leadership summit. And um, and so I did this exercise with them. Where we were talking about a news story of the day, and I went to that website, allsides.com. And what it does is it shows you the same story from the left, from Ugh. the right, and Fast. from the center. So you can go to that website and look at any news story of the day, and you can tell by the headlines almost which point of view, you know, which, which way the, the, that paper or that outlet is leaning. And then you can read the same story about the same issue from three different points of view. I think that that is one way for us to open our eyes and start to see and understand what media bias is. And it's one way that we can become more educated as we then start to look at headlines and stories from the places where we get our media and become a little bit more discerning as we decide whom we're going to trust. So it's a process. It's a process. I, I, can't tell you how much I love what you're talking about because I, I think we need to have our, you know, an, a, an aha moment in the sense that if we continue down this path, we're going to destroy our cities, we're going to destroy our country, we're going to destroy each other. You launched your podcast, and I, I love this, which I pulled from some of your writing. You said your pod, the, the podcast, Our Voices Matter, stems from the deteriorating level of discord in this country. You challenge us, the listeners, and and the community to focus on quote the other to be reminded of each other's quote, common humanity. Did, did the podcast come from 
your observation on what's going on with media and or just sort of national discord in general politics and how has that journey been have you found that people are open we you know we've got to start looking at the other we've got to start coming back to our common humanity so the answer to the first part of your question is it came from all of those places it came from the result of the 2016 election and all of all of everything that happened after that in terms of the divide in the country um it came from yes my concern about how media has changed the changing media landscape and and its role in the divide in our democracy um it was you know i i had this sort of epiphany and it was like okay i have to do something mm-hmm. i can no longer sit here you know maybe it's you know because i'm at at, at a stage in my life where i really want my life to have some meaning and some purpose and i you know i think about okay when i'm gone what is what do i you know what do i want to feel that i have left here what have i contributed to make this world a place where i know my daughter and her children and her children are going to be able to thrive and be okay so what am i going to do so i don't like the way things are you know i vote i vote in every election i you know i feel that i'm a an engaged and concerned citizen but there has to be something more that i can do so as i thought about that i thought okay i could run for office was not the time for me to do that or i could use my skills as a journalist to try to bring us together from a storytelling perspective and trying to get people to open up about what it's like to walk in their shoes and to be in their skin and to live their lives when they are made to feel like the other we're all somebody's other at at some point in our lives for one reason or another somebody is going to look at us as though we are the other so my my question to every guest within the context of of course of a very you know long conversation about their life and experience and everything else but it's you know what when were you made to feel like the other mm. how did that make you feel how did you respond to it in the moment what did you learn from it and then how are you using those lessons learned to show up in the world today and how you live your life both on a personal and professional level and i i love asking that question because I get such a wide variety of answers and I never know when it when I'm going to ask that question. Sometimes it comes up early in the interview, more often than not it comes up a little bit later, but I did one recently where um I I didn't know I and I try you know I, I don't want my guests to know to to tell me ahead of time, you know, what they're going to say. They know that that question's coming because I want them to have thought about it. Um but I was doing an interview and within the first 5 minutes or so this guest um started talking to me about being sexually assaulted. Mm. And I and you know and it was in high school. And I you know I was not expecting it but I think you know what what I try to do is to make people feel safe enough and comfortable enough to share their heart and their experience. so that people who might look at them initially and and think right off the bat based on their race the way they look their gender their 
their, their political ideology, their faith, whatever it is. You might have a preconceived idea when you look at the title and you see the picture of the person that I'm interviewing. In your mind, you've already got a bias. Yeah. Okay. They're already the other to you because they're not like you. My hope is that the guest will be open and honest enough and that I'm able to ask the kinds of questions that will then allow that listener or that viewer to say, hmm, I see a little bit of myself in that person. That what she or he just said really resonates with me. I get that. I felt the same way when I was made to feel like the other, or I've had an experience this, that's similar, or I want the same thing for my child as she wants for her child. That's a place where we can then start to have a dialogue, even if we don't agree on other things, at least it's a starting point. And, but we have to first look at ourselves as human beings and not just you know write each other off and say, oh, not even worth talking to. The beauty of social media is that we do all have a story we want to share. The problem with that is opening our, all of us collectively as a community, opening our lives up to each other. We, we, as a, I think the human nature is to compartmentalize, as you said, to always have somebody else be the other and therefore not associated with me. Your problem is not my problem. I, I'm better for these reasons. Um, I shared with you in, in some of the notes that we shared in prep for this, this discussion, my fear as po- political figures make other people the others. And I was on Twitter and I hate Twitter. I'm not a, I'm not a, fa- I'm, I shouldn't say I hate Twitter. I'm not a fan of Twitter in the sense where I feel like Twitter is where adults go to, to cyber bully freely. And um, that's all it is to me. But there was a, an elected official who was just refusing to have conversations with someone who had a different opinion on COVID and just said, I don't talk to, you know, this whole list of just, just people that were beneath that they're not even worthy Mm -hmm. of the conversation. And I thought my goodness, one, you're an elected official and you're supposed to represent the collective community, whether you agree with people or not, but two, how far gone have we become that Mm -hmm. this person is not even worthy of a conversation because we disagree on Um, I love the fact that you are forcing humanity back into the conversation. And you had one podcast, and I'm trying to remember his name, um, but he was, um, it was your, I think in your first, gosh, Linda, his name escapes me, but it was one of, I listened to the whole thing. He was, I want to say like a Nazi, like he was a racist. He was Okay. I know the one you're talking about. Um, he was a former recruiter for Al-Qaeda. Oh, he is that was the a- one? Is that, right. is that I mean, the one? Yeah. He was yeah. a former recruiter for Al-Qaeda. Yeah. His name is Jesse Morton. Mm-hmm. That's right. The conversations, mm-hmm. you know, that's, if you want to talk about having somebody be the other, you know, it's like, we can't even imagine having those conversations, but you had such a telling long incredible conversation with this person. And, and it makes, it inspires, hopefully it inspires everybody to stop and want to listen and do the same and, and bring back humanity into the, com- into, into our common dealings with so, each other. So a couple of things that, that I want to try to answer your question. So a couple of things, you know, Twitter, social media provides cover. You can be anonymous and you can 
hurl accusations, insults, hate, anger at any and everyone without any accountability and without having to look them in the face. So true. And that is the the problem right there, okay? Because I would argue that that same bully online, if they came up to you in person, that they would think twice before hurling those same accusations and insults to your face. Now, unfortunately, we are living in a time when what's happening is now that the the that kind of behavior that we're seeing online is now making its way into the streets yes. and onto airplanes and onto you know into any kind of venue which is the next step but it started with people feeling anonymous and emboldened and then having because they're in a filter bubble you know in that information filter loop where they're only getting reinforced for what they say and do and that their behavior is okay and that the people you know everybody wants to hear their opinion because it is you know it's so important and we have to hear what i think right now they believe that they have the right to do that to someone else so i think that's a huge huge problem um so so you had asked about um you mentioned jesse and you know some of the conversations that i've had I also had a conversation with uh, a former skinhead um, on on the podcast, and that one was really interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and what what was surprising to me because during that conversation, and it was it was about an hour long or so. um, I did not know I was going to go there, but I ended up sharing a personal um, experience where I had been called the N word, Mm. and. Um, she cried. It, will you? Will you share? She I cried. Was, I was going to ask you when. Mm. When have you been made to feel the other? Because it's mm. a question you ask all of us. I'm going to ask you that, and then if you feel led to share that story, I'd love for you to share it. But but please, you know, when were you made to feel the other? And I imagine that 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 story that you shared that you know moved moved your guest to tears is yeah. Is, if if you felt comfortable, it's worth sure, sharing. Sure, sure. Um, so that story actually happened when I was on the air um, here in Houston. I was still anchoring for KPRC, and um, you know, like like a lot of female news anchors, we we get um, you know mail from people that we don't necessarily want it from. Um, but I had actually been I was being harassed by. Um, by a skinhead, a neo-Nazi who was, you know, writing me really horrific um, letters. This was before email. (laughs) That's how long ago it was. Um, And I actually still have these letters. We ended up getting the FBI involved. And um, the FBI agent went to this person's home. And the father answered the door and the agent said to him, um, you know, your son has been writing these letters to Linda Laurel and, um, you know, he's threatening her and, and he really needs to stop. And, um, and the father said, well, there's no law against hating a nigger. And that's just a little bit of, you know, you can imagine what the letters were like. Um, 
you know, I'm just somebody trying to do my job, trying to do the best that I can to give back to the community. But all he saw was the color of my skin. And now that we've met the father, we know where he got it from. Mm. Okay. So hate is learned. Racism is learned. We don't pop out of the womb hating somebody because they look different than we are. We are taught to do that. And so I just feel as though it all, and when I say all, I mean almost everything that we are dealing with as the human race comes back to human connection and where it, it disintegrates. And if we can find a way to um, reconnect on that very basic level, because the only race really is the human race. That's it. That's it. We created all the rest of this crap. Mm, We created it. We created it. We've created all the structures, all the systems, you know, everything. It's all from us. And, And only we have the power to dismantle it. But I know one thing's for sure is that one one way to to not dismantle it is to not talk about it. Yes. And to not teach it. You know, this whole this whole movement that is happening in our state and in other states around the country, where we're saying, oh, we can't teach our kids that because so and so is going to feel bad. Well, mm. we can't teach them this. We have to teach our history. How else are we going to not repeat it? How else are we going to improve upon it? So it starts with, you know, that human, I'm I'm a human being, you're a human being. What do we have in common that we're both, you know, we all want the same thing. We all want to live a good life. We all want to make a good living, you know, be able to enjoy the beauty of this planet, the beauty of our relationships. It's not rocket science. We all want the same thing. Why are we making it so freaking hard? And I think when, you know, if I want it and I, and I strive for it, it it does not mean that if you have it, it takes from my ability. Thank you. Thank you. Enough with the scarcity mindset. There is enough for all of us. Yes. There is enough for all of us. Linda, I'm curious, why did you keep those letters? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, you know, for the longest time, I didn't even realize I had kept them. Mm. I think I put them in a box with with pretty much all of my memorabilia from that time. But um, I'm actually glad that I kept them because it's a reminder of, um, of the reality that we live in. Mm. It's a reminder that no matter... Um, I hate to say this because it sounds so um, hopeless and I, and I don't mean it to come across that way, but it's just a reminder that no matter what I do or what I say or what I accomplish or what heights I might achieve, that there are some people in this world who will always look at me as a nigger, period, end of story, full stop. That's just it. That's it. And, and it's my life's mission to help change people's minds about those, those preconceived, those taught ideas that have no basis in fact. You know, I'm not a threat to you. 
I am not a threat to you just because I happen to have black, brown skin. I'm not. If anything, I'm your, you know, I'm your ally. Mm. I, I want, I want you to have a wonderful, fulfilling life as a human being on this earth, because we all deserve that. Why wouldn't I want that for you? And, and I'm not asking you to give it to me. I'm just asking you to, you know, allow me the same opportunities that everyone else has and not to be judged simply by the color of my skin over which I have absolutely no control. I'm to cons- to think of where who you are and where you are. You know, you look at whether it's your podcast guests, the interviews you've had, Brene Brown and the Neil Bush, and I mean, the list goes on and on. The people you've interviewed is it's unbelievable. The awards, the Emmys you've received, the positions you've held, the recognition, the respect. I want to look at you as is you know. Uh, uh, not a woman following in your footsteps by any means, but just a woman who is also trying to do and contribute to the community and the city in which she serves and think you escaped, you escaped the racial issue. You, you somehow sailed through it. You got around it. It, it didn't plague you, hurt you, harm you, hold you back in any way. And I feel like I need to see that, you know, I want to see that, whether it's Huda Kotb, who's also Egyptian like me, or fill in the blank, that you you sailed through, no issues, you did it. But is is it fair to say that? Because I, I want mm. to say that, but I don't know that I can say that really for you or for anyone else. Um, I might choose different terminology. I wouldn't say that I have sailed through. I don't think anybody really sails necessarily sails through anything. We all have our hardships and our challenges and whatnot. But generally speaking, yes, as a as a black person growing up in this country, I have had a much more privileged life than many people who have my skin color. And there are, I think, a lot of reasons for that, um, which, you know, just growing up in a in a really loving two-parent professional household, um, being taught the value of education and just having a, you know, having a community of people that were helping and supporting me, none of which I take lightly at all. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to say that any of us really sail through. I think what happens is we learn to deal with the the challenges that come our way because of the color of our skin or because of our gender or because of both or because of whatever. And you just kind of, you know, once you figure out that that's part of the equation, then it becomes, okay, how do I deal with this and stay on course? Yeah. How do I, how do I take this, this, um, this experience and turn it around so that it's not going to hurt me, but it's actually going to move me in the right direction. So we become masters at living in two different worlds. You know, I mean, there've been a lot, there's been a lot, you know, a lot of articles, a lot of books about, you know, black people living, you know, in the black community, you act one way, but in the white community, you act another way, you talk differently, you dress differently, you, you know, you adapt it's survival. You adapt to the environment that you are in and you learn what you need to do 
to stay in the game and win. That for, for you, whatever winning for you means. That is a huge, that is like it unpacking that could be like seven series of podcasts. <laughs> I know. Because I, know. I, I had a conversation with a gentleman and I and it was actually one of on one of Crime Stoppers Facebook lives. And he I said, you know, coming from the immigrant versus the black, what are why are why is it different? And he said, as a black man, the whole world is conspiring. The whole world is working against me. As an immigrant, you're kind of like left to your own. If you work hard enough, you'll make your way. And that has sat with me for so long because I don't know. Is that true? Is that not true? Is it what you just said? The 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 insight to say this is a different situation. I need to dress differently, talk differently, act differently. Um, is that's not? Is that just? having a winner's sort of approach and figuring out what it takes to keep going or is it or is it a recognition that if i'm not like them i don't have a chance and is that inherently a negative so i mm. i just find that that whole area so mm -hmm. fast i'll tell you growing up in an arabic household with immigrant parents my lunches were different you know at home they spoke only arabic my weekends were not with the soccer moms at the soccer field. It was like either at church or with people in the community speaking air. I mean, it was totally different. And you, you realize what you had to do maneuver to get out and keep going. And I never saw that as a negative, although some people see it as very threatening. I know our time is limited, but I do, I want to switch to another topic because I'm very curious about your thoughts on this. Um, again, in the media, you're a storyteller you have a heart for this community. You have a heart for all communities. You were, you've served on many boards, one of them being the Houston Police Foundation early on. Uh, this country has had a huge discussion about the role of law enforcement in communities. The last three years, two years have really changed courses entirely. Public safety is now political. Um, law enforcement in some areas are seen as heroes and other areas it's, you know, keep law enforcement out at all costs. What is your, what have you been thinking as you've been watching all of this, given your service, you know, your views, your experiences, the news, all of it? Very mm -hmm. So um, I think that, that, that policing in general needs to be reformed. I think that the term defund the police is the wrong term. Mm. I get what... I, I get what the, the message behind it is not about defunding the police. It's not about saying we don't need policing, we don't need law enforcement, because obviously we do. I, I believe that, that we, you know, we need law enforcement, we need law and order in our, in our society. That said, I think that there is a role for um, more mental health services, more social services, I think that we can't expect our law enforcement officers to be everything that we need. And I think there is a place and a role for mental health workers and social workers, et cetera, to work in tandem with law enforcement so that when something is a situation requires that, that the resources are available and that we're, you know, not asking officers to be mental health experts. 
Um, and you know, that's a whole nother, um, what, uh, challenge that our society is facing is, is mental health. And I've done a number of podcasts on that as well. And I'm glad that we're finally talking about it and having a more open conversation about it, but it permeates every aspect of all of the challenges that we're facing as a society, law enforcement included. So I think there is a role for um, reconfiguring what law enforcement looks like, what good policing looks like, what um, community policing in terms of relationships between law enforcement and those people in the community, I think there's room for all of that. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that whoever came up, and I don't know who came up with the term defund the police, I think it was the wrong term because it sends the wrong message and it doesn't allow for nuanced conversation about what it really means and what the needs are and why we need to change policing. Clearly, clearly we have had, you know, a spate, I mean, years and years and years and years of black and brown people being murdered by police officers when they should not have been. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. That's a problem. And clearly we have to reform that. And there, there's so many, you know, there's so much that needs to go into training in terms of biased training for police officers. And I, you know, I've actually been involved with a little bit of that. So I, I know, you know, how important that is to change the dynamic. And again, back to the human connection. We don't need white police officers, and I'm speaking very specifically right now in general mm -hmm. terms, okay? Specifically in general terms, um, whatever that means. White police, we don't need white police officers who have grown up, for instance, in a home like the one that I just talked about with the neo-Nazi who was taught to hate. So we don't need white police officers who already have been indoctrinated to hate people of color just because of the color of their skin on a police force where they're making split second decisions about whether that person is guilty or innocent on the spot simply because of the color of their skin. And they don't even know that that's how they think. Yeah. So there's, there's room, you know, there has to be honest, open conversation about that kind of bias that exists within law enforcement. But there's also room, as I said, for bringing in mental health experts. And we just need to rethink the way that policing is done because it has its roots, you know, all the way back to slavery. We, we can go there too. It does. It has its roots in making sure that slaves don't, you know, flee the plantation. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot. There's a lot that needs to be done. Well, I think the leadership, at least locally at the Houston Police uh, Department, they've done an incredible job making sure that law enforcement reflects the community it serves, that law enforcement officers have deep roots in the communities they serve, that kids um, and parents, let's say at a school, don't see law enforcement presence as a negative, as a threatening mm -hmm. military style, but more mm -hmm. as like a community friend there to say hi, give a high five, shake a hand and play basketball. It's so, it's so, it's so important. And, and I, I will say this too, because I don't want people to think that, you know, when I'm saying a white police officer, a black per bias exists in all of us, 
yeah. in every human being. And whether it's a white police officer with bias or a black police officer with bias or an Asian police officer with bias, we all have these. And mm-hmm. we all need to, to know, especially if we're if if you're in law enforcement, to start to recognize what the biases are that we have and then how you go about um, recognizing it and then rethinking how you would handle a particular situation. So I think there's there's a real place and role for that that, that needs to happen in police departments across the country. And I know H, I know HPD, the Houston Police Department, um, is doing that. I think they're doing a great job. Linda, before we wrap up with you, what's next for you? What are you looking forward to this year? Oh, wow. I'm looking forward to a really busy year. For It started off that way, for sure. Um, just doing more uh, on the podcast and and kind of expanding a few things here and there and um, just, um, you know, continuing to sound the, I don't want to say sound the alarm, but continuing to just put out there the message that we are all part of the human race and that we can get through this together, but it's going to take all of us and each of us has a role to play and that everybody just has to decide to do whatever their one part is. Mm. And if everybody just does their one part, whatever that is for you, about reaching out and being kind and having empathy and trying to help understand a family member, a friend, a coworker who doesn't look like you, doesn't talk like you, doesn't pray like you or whatever, work toward finding whatever it is that you have in common with that person and then take it from there. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Linda Laurel will be following you on your journey, continuing to follow you. We thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Balanced Voice podcast. And for everybody else, we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's Balanced Conversation. You can find real solutions and tangible resources in our show notes at thebalancedvoicepodcast.com. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at thebalancedvoicepodcast and on Twitter at balancedvoice underscore. Stay up to date on Renya's work by following her at The Renya Report. And we can't wait to see you next week for another Balanced Conversation.